Olivia Coleman stars and Dakota Jansen. <laughs> Spunky Jansen's sister, Dakota. <laughs> In that- Hello, everyone, and welcome to Plot Devices, episode 18. We are officially adults on the show. Kind of, maybe, sort of, but not mentally. I am your host for today, Brandon King, alongside my co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you doing on this fine day in 2022 today? Yes, Happy New Year to all of our listeners. I'm excited to be here. We got a review-packed episode. Um, we're, turning, we're returning to the traditional format here in a couple weeks, but for now, um, we've got plenty on our plate, and I can't wait to get started on them. Yes, if you guys have tuned into our most anticipated films of 2022, which you should check out the mini-sode right now, it's up uh, as you're listening to the show. I mentioned that uh, I mentioned that next week's show would be a main show. That's not necessarily the case because I screwed up editing. Uh, this week is just going to be all reviews because there's a lot of things. It's like all of us have moaned about for the last you know two months that everything got jam-packed in the last two months because of COVID and delays and everything, and it only seems like that's going to get worse. But... We decided to start off the show before all of, you know, the big main reviews. We're going to get to Make Sure. We're going to get to uh, Don't Look Up. We decided to each pick a movie uh, that we've been catching up on in the last week or so, you know, over the holidays and all that nonsense uh, that we may have missed out on, that we may have, you know, wanted to refresh ourselves with, that we haven't talked about on this channel. And we each picked one, and we're going to get right into our first one. This is the one that I picked out. Uh, spoiler, they're both very lighthearted in contrast to the other ones we're going to talk about today. So if you're looking for the fun episode, this is the part of it. The first one we're talking about today is Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Of course, the uh, Kristen Stewart, Annie Mumola movie. Uh, the, the masterminds behind Bridesmaids returned uh, over this year. Of course, in the you know March to May span when everything was you know confused about theatrical releases and everything. I didn't get to it. No, I didn't get to it. We're going to talk about it right now. This is the directorial feature debut from Josh Greenbaum. If you saw the uh, documentary Becoming Bond about uh, George Lazenby, who is one of the actors played James Bond, he directed that. He's directed Border Patrol. This is his first uh, feature, of course, from a script from Kristen Wiig and Annie Molo. They play the titular Barb and Star. They're kind of not airheads, but like, you know, they're nice. They're kind. They're kind of simple folk from Nebraska. Uh, they get fired from their jobs at this furniture store. And using their severance package, they take the advice of a friend of theirs to a glorious, you know, spa town on the coast of Florida, Vista Del Mar, thinking they'll be then for banana boats and seashells and all this wondrous things because they, you know, they're so excited to see the world, only to wrap themselves up in a terror plot uh, by Sharon Fisherman, who is also played by uh, Kristen Wiig, as well as Jamie Dornan as her henchman slash potential lover, Edgar, and how all of that ties together. Uh, no, I want to get your thoughts on this first. I know that um, I actually never gotten your thoughts on this. Uh, have you been a fan of uh, Wig and Mamola's work from SNL, from Bridesmaids and everything else? What did you have going into this that you had heard of earlier in the year? And what did you think of Barb and Star? The wig and Mumolo uh, bridesmaids was hilarious when they first came out. Um, I'm actually learning now that they were both writers. So to see them return and create something so, uh, so wacky, so different and at most times ridiculous. Uh, I had a blast watching this. I was aware of the trailer, you know, sometime, sometime in the last year just popped up and it was, uh, you know, hard, uh, Oh, it was, I feel like a woman and we're seeing like these slow rocks of heels. We're seeing like just slow lifts of the necklace. And it's making you think that these two small town ladies are just way out of their comfort zone if they were to ever leave their city. So to experience that in this movie, I just had a blast because they are so witty. They're so funny. I'm convinced that uh the inspiration behind this work must have been them both. Like, I don't know, creating a character out of 
pure fun and then going, oh my gosh, like Barb and Star, like let's turn this into a whole movie. Um, and then an added like terrorism plot that has to do with killer bees or kill, killer wasps was weird. And, and it was yes. wild. It was wild to see it, you know, thrown in there. Oh yeah, mosquitoes. Um, so I really want to hear about like what you thought about that because we have our initial plot of them just going on vacation, which seems like a lot to handle for these two ladies. Um, they do so wonderfully packing their curlers, packing their cantans or, uh, caftans. And, uh, but then we have this, you know, uh, this plot with the, with a, a global, uh, global disaster level, um, Kristen Wiig is playing two characters. One of them looks like they're straight out of an Austin Powers movie. So I was happy to see that. Um, but it was wacky. You know, that, that's, that's the first word that comes to mind is I had a lot of fun, but it was a wacky movie. Uh, what did you think, Brandon? This movie is ridiculous. Um, it, it, it kind of feels like, again, you know, it, it's Wig, it's Momolo, it's Bridesmaids. It feels like the best SNL sketch that never was made that got made into a movie. Uh, and I feel like... The terror plot is interesting, uh, and I will simply say, Kristen Wiig not only makes for a good villain beyond just the music cues, which are, again, straight out of Austin Powers, like, they're not Quincy Jones, but they sound like Quincy jones lights ish uh, but beyond that, like, I like what she does as this character, Sharon, like, when you, and I won't spoil for any of you, I haven't watched it, but, like, when you dive into her backstory and you actually see why she's targeting this town, you actually kind of feel sorry for her. <laughs> like, there's genuine empathy for the character. Um, but it's also the least interesting part of the movie in my mind. Like, to me, the appeal of this is Wig and Mumolo, and they are somehow never boring. Like, I kept waiting for the point when, because the, they're always just bouncing dialogue from one another, and I just felt like somehow this spark is going to go away, and it just never does. Even in the moments where, like, there is, you know, drama, quote-unquote, in the story, they're just so delightful and so wise-eyed. I think um, uh, Randy Reviews, if any of you follow him on Twitter, he described this as live-action SpongeBob and Patrick, and he's not wrong between the beach setting and between, you know, their kind of personality dynamics. Uh, and then you have Jamie Dornan, who I was going on about about Belfast. This might be his best turn of the year. Uh, the musical number, which I will not spoil. You need to watch this for yourself. Um, but again, like beyond that, the humor is meme-tastic, if that's a word. It has no pacing to it, but somehow a lot of it works. Uh, it's one of those movies that, again, it's not for everyone. Like, Damon Wayans is kind of wasted in this. Uh, Vanessa Boyer is kind of wasted in it. They're supporting characters that I think could have been utilized more. And again, that whole overarching story is take it or leave it. You come for the characters and you come for the humor. And if you can walk onto that wavelength, you are going to be having a permagrant for 90 minutes. You wrap that up so beautifully. Uh, this is available on Hulu now, um, released earlier in, tw- in 2021, around February's time, uh, for like a Valentine's Day spot. And, um, it's definitely worth the watch. I mean, I felt like I was in Vista Del Mar whenever I was, uh, traveling here with, um, Barb and Star. And, uh, it's probably going to be a voice that I play with with my partner because we both watched it together. And, uh, while she found it to be like rather repetitive, I couldn't get enough of it. Like I, I found it to be so, just so, um, so raw and like that SNL appeal, which Kristen Wiig just like, I just, I'm more familiar with her. So I'm going to give her praise, but, um, I just felt like she always dominated when it came to these, these, uh, these quirky, you know, characters. Yeah, at least for me, I this is a solid eight out of ten for me. Again, it's genuinely entertaining. Not really a structure to it. The humor is not going to be necessarily for everyone. You know, there, there's like hallucinogenic crabs and water spirits, and like there's all these different things that just kind of pop up out of nowhere. I had a total blast with it. I think it's underrated from this past year, and I would totally recommend it. 
And my star rating is going to be a 7 out of 10. This was a pleasurable watch, very easy to watch. Uh, you could probably just pick it up, play it for 30 minutes, go on with your day, come back to it, play another 30. Like, it's not something that is demanding so much of your attention. But if you give it just a little bit, you're going to feel so rewarded and feel like you're having a grand old time. It really is. Like, I would actually totally concur about just putting it back up and, and for a date movie as well. Uh, on to your recommendation, Noah. You picked out one that I'm genuinely excited about. You'll have to forgive me. I mean, you are a man behind the scenes. You do so well on that research side. And I know you'll have much to talk about this animation studio. Today, we're talking about The Mitchells versus The Machines. This was released on Netflix April 30th. I'm going to go ahead and read you the IMDb description now. It's a quirky, dysfunctional family's road trip. It's upended when they find themselves in the middle of a robot apocalypse and suddenly become humanity's unlikeliest last hope. The plot really centers around the uh, college-bound daughter. Her name is Katie. She's played by Abby Jacobson. Um, Her parents are portrayed by Danny McBride and Maya Rudolph. Their characters are Rick and Linda. Um, She has a little brother as well. But uh, the the plot starts out with Katie uh, really coming into her own when it comes to her film endeavors. And she's getting accepted into a film school. And she's starting to realize that her family is not the is not the community that she needs to grow as an artist. Um, So she wants to get away from them. Uh, by going to college and really experiencing that new college life, which is so familiar for some of us who remember what it was like to believe, you know, like my communities are there. I just have to get to them. And you feel like you're missing out when you're, when you, when you feel so close. And that's what I think uh, that freshman feeling is. Um, but in an effort to uh, repair some of these uh, tender bonds, we have uh McBride's character initiating a family road trip to deliver Katie to their school or to her university. And um, on the way, a apocalyptic event happens where a an AI goes rogue. We're talking like Siri level goes rogue and starts to um, really just initiate her plan for global domination. Uh, we have Olivia Coleman playing as Pal, who is the rogue AI and, um, that's all the details you need to get started with this movie. Um, it is animation that will remind you of, uh, I mean, even the promotional material says um, from humans that brought you Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and the Lego movie. Um, both of those you watch with a smile on your face the entire time. This movie, while, you know, there's less familiarity with what concepts they're playing with, with what um, characters they include, you can jump right into it and you can have a blast just watching it. It is, it is intense color. It is um, action heavy. And, uh, and it's, and it's warm hearted. Like family, it really is the core value and the core focus in this movie. Um, Brandon, did you watch this when it first released or did you return to it just like I did here at the end of the year? Oh, I've been excited about this since it was a Sony property. Like this was a Sony animation movie again in terms of Spider-Verse with the Lord of Miller dynasty. COVID happened, got sold to Netflix, the rest is history. Uh, I've been excited about it ever since then. I've loved the uh, director, Mike Rionda, who worked on uh, Gravity Falls. He's worked on a couple other things. So I was excited to see what he could make with his directorial debut. Ha ha, wink, wink. It all ties together uh, with his debut with uh, this. And unlike Barb and Star, which like I had a ton of fun with, but I acknowledge it's not for everyone. Everyone should see this movie. It's tremendous. It's probably going to be in my top 10 of the year. Like, I think it's. It's tremendous. First of all, it's tremendously animated. Like, it's gorgeous. I love the design aesthetic to it all. It's very, I describe it as almost, you know, Spider-Verse meets Futurama, if that makes any sense. Like, the design sensibility feels very kind of bubbly textures to it, but the colors still pop everywhere. It's beautiful. Um, the voice cast is tremendous. Uh, Abby Jacobson voices 
what is probably one of my favorite characters of the year in Katie Mitchell, beyond the fact that, you know, oh, she's a filmmaker, like she's, you know, totally relatable and quirky and all that. She's also, you know, spoiler, LGBTQ representation, which we'll get into that later. Um, but I love her just as far as what she represents to the family, what she represents as terms of the story, because like you mentioned, you know, technology is kind of a huge thing in this movie. Or a movie where, you know, the father figure is very much in this movie kind of, you know, anti-tech and very kind of rural in his beliefs. And that does tie back into the emotional core of the characters and of the story. I think for a movie like this to take such a balanced stance on technology, like, yeah, this kind of sucks. And we need to, you know, take our eyes off screens every once in a while. But also, like, that's what saves the day in the end. And I like how balanced and nuanced it can feel in the midst of just incredibly funny jokes. Like, I'm not going to spoil what's in the movie, but... You will laugh consistently at this. Uh, the supporting turns from like, you know, Charlene Yee and Beck Bennett and uh, uh, what's the name? Uh, Christy Teigen and John Legend pop up in there for like a half second. It's great. Um, but again, like the story is what you come from. The emotional core of it is great. It's a movie about, you know, yes, the value of family, but also the very complex nature of family at an age such as Katie's. Like, again, you mentioned it perfectly well how, you know, people in our generation are like right above are coming into an era of technology that is for all these purposes, kind of raising them to a certain extent that families would in the past and how we reconnect with that idea of it. And I think for a movie that is so, you know, wow, how goofy and meme-like, like for that to have that kind of emotional core to it, I was so incredibly impressed. Yours and mine may be similar, but uh, I gave this a nine. I thought that this was a uh, a watch that I'm definitely going to return to with my little bro, um, even with my family, who we all... Uh, just a, a short sidebar, uh, Chrissy Teigen and John Legend play as the, you know, influencer family who yep, uh, yep. the Mitchells all observe on their devices and just go, wow, like, why is their family so perfect? And it's so relatable because, you know, we all have those internalized, like, um, those perspectives of like, wow, like, here's the way, you know, this person's life is being lived. And we compare it to our own and um, the ways in which the Mitchells are strong um, are, are just as real as, um, as what they see in the other family. So, uh, that that was interesting how they included, uh, I call them the yoga family, but yeah, this was a nine. Quick to your point, because we're going to talk about Olivia Coleman later with uh, The Lost Daughter. Very different role for her, but I bring up that because of the idea of, you know, technological comparisons, of that idea of Pal as a character who, you know, spoiler, becomes the villain. And I like the idea that she has to kind of look at the Mitchells as like, no, this is, goes against like everything that I have been taught as we have been taught by, you know, social media influencers and everything like that. So I like kind of the parallel they lean into with the villain. Uh, for me, this is an easy nine and a half. I love almost everything about this movie. It's gorgeous. It's, you know, emotional. It's funny. It's everything I think you want in a good family animated movie. It's been on Netflix since April. I know a lot of people who have gotten into it mainly because I have been ranting and raving about it. Um, but yes, if you have not got to it, please get to it. It's worth your time, and I'm rooting for it for Oscar season. That wraps up our uh, short little mini section of, you know, those ones that got away from us this year. I'm happy we returned to those, Brandon. Uh, the next review list is going to include uh, a lot of new releases. You know, some of these are from the past week, some of them may be two weeks old, but they're just ones that um, we felt we needed to cover on this podcast, deliver you um, our thoughts. And first one we're covering is The Kingsman. So I'll go ahead and provide a brief summary for you. Um, this is The Kingsman. This is the third entry in the Kingsman trilogy. Can I call it a trilogy if the third is a prequel? It's funny because there is going to be a Kingsman 3. So technically this will be a quadrilogy in a few years. It's a quadrilogy uh, coming from Matthew Vaughn, who, if I, if anyone is unfamiliar, has directed Stardust and Kick-Ass. When I learned that, I thought, wow, okay, no 
it's no wonder why I value these movies so much. But when I say these movies, I mean Kingsman and The King's Man. I'm sorry, but Golden Circle completely lost me. This isn't about that. This is about The King's Man. So let me read you the summary off of IMDb. In the early years of the 20th century, The King's Men Agency is formed to stand against a cabal, plotting a war to wipe out millions Ralph Fiennes, playing Orlando Oxford. His son, Conrad Oxford, is portrayed by Harris Dickinson. Um, while Oxford is a returning uh, character name to the franchise, uh, Conrad is a new character. So we get to learn what he, that relationship means for um, the story and what it means to um, Orlando Oxford. Um, allies include Gemma Arterton port- playing the character Polly. We have Jiman Hansu playing um, Shola. And the, the three of them really form the initiating members of the Kingsmen and what they serve. We really see in this movie the core founding members of what the Kingsmen serve, and that is uh, with no particular governments, they are just uh, trying to eradicate any any big bad that gets too that gets too dominating, too powerful. And in this case, it is someone who they're trying to reignite a feud between three brothers that that um, exist across three countries. It's going to be Germany, Russia, and Britain, and they're trying to um, reignite the drama between the brothers to try and incite a war. Uh, we have Germany against Russia, Germany against Britain, um, and this whole political plot that, honestly, I couldn't do service summarizing, so I'm just going to let you experience the movie. What I'm here to talk about today is how um, amazing the action felt when we returned to the Kingsman. Um, if you've seen Kick-Ass, you know how flashy those action sequences can get, how loud those gun bangs are. But what was exciting about this entry was, to me, it is probably up there with Pirates of the Caribbean with movies that just make me want to learn how to swordsmanship this place up because um, there's even a scene where you think that they attach a GoPro or something to the, to the base of a blade and um, long, long and clean fight sequences between um, Risi Fons, who plays a priest called uh, Grigori Rasputin, um, who actually has so much comedic appeal in this movie. I found the first half of this movie to be hilarious. Um, whereas the second half kind of fell short when it came to the comedy. Uh, it, it remained action packed throughout. Um, but as far as just telling the story of how the Kingsman got started, um, I thought this, this story had moments of emotional appeal. Um, of course, heavy action sets. Um, but I, maybe the political plot got a little too uh, dense for me, but. Um, I was attaching it to it, you know, where I could, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Brandon? Uh, the rugged soldier you are. Uh, I, should I, you never read the, uh, the Mark Millar comic series it's based on, have you? Okay, I've read like a few pages. I'm, I'm mostly familiar with the movies like you are. Uh, I love the first one. You're right, we don't talk about the second one. Uh, even if it tried, it did try, but, you know, it, it, it did a thing. Um, many of you are familiar with, you know, the lead up to World War One with, you know, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, with the conflict between, you know, the Kaiser and everything. Uh, this is basically that, but, you know, with Kingsman on the sidelines is kind of like the men in black kind of, you know, the underbelly of society trying to fix that all from, you know, beyond and trying to fix the world before it starts kind of thing. Uh, this is interesting. And I will simply say, uh, no props to Disney on this. They picked a terrible release date for this. I wish they had released it in January. It could have made money in January versus having to go up against, you know, Spider-Man and Matrix and all this. Th- and it just feels like, Disney was just kind of plopping in the holidays to make it work. Uh, so I don't take precedence with that. That being said, it's interesting. I like the dynamic between Orlando and his son. Uh, first of all, Ralph Fiennes is amazing in this. Uh, he's a true action hero in this. Like, it makes you wonder in another universe if he had become, like, the, you know, Timothy Dalton incarnation of James Bond or that kind of thing. 
Uh, or maybe even something like the Avengers, like the 90s British Avengers, because I, I know some people, they're like, oh, the Avengers. No, like the British Avengers. Um, like you think, you don't think of Ralph Fiennes as an action hero and he can totally pull it off. He has all the poise to do it. I don't know how many stunts he does in this, but he totally like makes it look like he pulls it off. As does Harris Dickinson in this. Like he, he pulls off the physicality of it. He has some great scenes with uh, Jim Hanso, who is great to see in more prominent roles. I, I thought for a while it was just going to be relegated to like, you know, supporting warlord number one kind of deal and this he actually gets some time to shine as a Gemma Arterton like the whole inner cabal they have is great but I like how it approaches the idea of you know drafting and wartime and propaganda within that microcosm of Orlando and his son because for once it's very much the idea of you know because you go back to that time and it's very much fathers who were you know manly and you know sheltered off and kind of insisting that their sons go for the glory of the country. And here, you know, it's the opposite. Orlando is a pacifist and his son is much more, you know, not war hungry, but like willing to serve, but not so much for, you know, blood and, you know, violence or anything, but to serve what he believes is the right cause. And I like that the film goes into that because I think it's the one thing that kept me really hooked. Uh, You're right. The whole like inner cabal stuff, it's neat, but they take way too long with it. Uh, You know, the overarching villain who, you know, I won't spoil, but like, you know, Daniel Brohl pops up in there as like a German henchman. Uh, there's a couple other people in there, you know, otherwise. And it just feels very kind of there a lot. Like the action sequences are obviously well shot. Matthew Vaughn knows what he's doing. Taking a bit too much from Guy Ritchie this time. Like if you've seen, you know, Lockstock 2, Surfing Barrows, if you've seen Sherlock Holmes, this is ripped right out of that, even though Vaughn clearly has made those styles his own. Uh, and it flies by. Like, I didn't think it was too long at all. And I was really afraid that it was going to just, you know, take advantage of, you know, the world scale of it all and just go from this place to this place and do all these different things. And it doesn't, it just goes, you know, this is the story. This is the plot. Here we go. And I was really impressed by how tame it feels uh, for a Matthew Vaughn project in that sense. Uh, But overall it's fine. It doesn't have the same excitement or the same populism that I think the first Kingsman has, Uh, but it has interesting ideas to it. The cast are clearly giving an effort. And again, I think it is worth a shot. If you were a fan of that first movie and golden circle completely soured you like it did me, like, this has got me excited for a third Kingsman, for a proper third Kingsman movie, I should say. Uh, and I, I enjoyed it to an extent. I just don't love it. Yeah, and how do you feel about that? Uh, you got a, We got a brief, like, nearly 1917 moment in the middle of that story. We did, yeah. Yeah. You know, there was a fight scene where we saw, uh, you know, two battalions of soldiers. They're against one another. Um, they're fighting in trench warfare. And as they approach one another... Um, they decide to lay down their weapons to avoid, you know, at the risk of being fired on upon both sides and just, you know, ending it in a bloodbath. And they all pull out their blades and somebody pulls out like this fist pike. And I don't know, I, I was really like in that moment, the, the little, little kid in me who loves action is like, yeah, let's, let's start fighting with blades and knives. But then the other part of me was just like, well, like, <laughs> this is, this is kind of, this is really scary. And, and I'm believing it to be so real, um, really capturing that feeling in the wartime. Um, and then it became like 1917. And then I was like, oh, okay, this is, we're spending longer here than I thought. Um, but it, it ultimately contributes to the relationship between Oxford and his son. Um, and yeah, for those legacy fans who, not legacy, because I mean, it's not super uh, dated, but for those Kingsman fans, uh, we do get a follow up on why certain characters are named after Arthurian tales. So that was actually a nice payoff. I do want to bring up two of the sporting cast because you bring up uh, Reese Fawns, his Grigory Rasputin. For any of you who know uh, your history, Rasputin is basically that. 
Um, like it's it's highly exaggerated, but again, that's basically him. Like he was a womanizer, he was, you know, a manipulator, he supposedly could not die. And like I love how the film kind of plays with that idea of the legacy of Rasputin and you know the manipulation tactics that he would use, you know, kind of in the house of God and like that kind of thing. And Reese Bonds does feel like he's in a completely different movie, but I kind of loved him as part of it. Uh, and I do also want to just give per- quick props to uh, Tom Hollander, not Tom Holland, uh, Tom Hollander, the British actor who plays a triple role in this as King George, Kaiser Wilhelm and uh, Sar Nicholas, which is weird. And he's not in it that much, but he kind of pulls it off like it's very much meant to be like, oh, our politicians kind of a joke and like, isn't the monarchy a sham and like that kind of thing. He's so talented, Brandon. I didn't even know. <laughs> I didn't even know he was the same actor. Excellent. All right. Uh, okay, moving on. Because he's under like the Kaiser's mustache and like the headpiece and everything. Like, yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't have pointed out, would have never known. Um, for me, this was a seven. Um, I am a sucker for the action flicks, and this does have enough for you to stick with it from the beginning to the end. It was an excellent take. You know, fans of kick ass, you know, re- return. Not necessarily to theaters, but when, at your earliest convenience, check out The Kingsman. Um, I guarantee you'll probably watch it and enjoy the time. I give this a seven. Yeah, this is a six for me. Um, I obviously miss Eggsy and Harry and, you know, Henry Jackman's score and like that whole vibe that made the original Kingsman so distinct for what it was and so reflective of its genre tropes and reflective of the comic material as well. I, I have heard of the Mark Millar run is good. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Uh, this film is more interesting than I thought. The ideas are clearly there. It doesn't stay too long. That core father-son relationship, I think, is more fascinating than it's given credit for. But again, like, the plot doesn't really flow. The style isn't quite there. You can tell that Matthew Vaughn really wanted to try something new, and I don't think it quite works here. But for, like, Kingsman fans, it's certainly worth a watch. If you're comfortable going to theaters, please support it. Again, support basically anything you can in theaters right now. Uh, if not, seek it out when it comes to VOD. I think you might have a good time. We are going to move on with that into our next project. Uh, this is a bit of a contentious one, and I'm a bit nervous to talk about it, but I reviewed it, and I'm going to have to start off with it. Uh, Licorice Pizza. This is Paul Thomas Anderson's latest project. Uh, he wrote, directed, produced this, and served as co-cinematographer alongside Michael Bauman, uh, based on an original idea from him that he came up with uh, a few years ago. This stars uh, Alana Haim in her feature film debut, in her acting debut, I should say. Uh, of course, if you're any of your fans of the fan of uh, the band Haim, uh, she is the guitarist from that band. Spoiler, she's stellar in this. Uh, she plays Alana Kane, uh, sort of a sort of like a mid-20s, you know, valley girl type kind of, you know, maneuvering through her life. Uh, she takes a job for a high school picture day. Uh, she runs into the 15-year-old Gary Valentine, played by Cooper Hoffman, the son of the late collaborator of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who was also great in this. Uh, Gary is kind of, he's mature for his age, let's call him that. Uh, he's a child actor, he's very much interested in going into business, and he's all kind of, you know, kind of more adult avenues than just, you know, the entertainment world takes Alana under his wing to show her, like, the other side of, like, L.A., like, the side of the entertainment industry, and basically the two just kind of form this weird, quirky relationship. Uh, she's not quite sure what to make of him, he's not quite sure what to make of her, and they just kind of go around Los Angeles in uh, 1973. They run into a ton of weird supporting characters. You have Bradley Cooper as the infamous movie producer John Peters, who was a legendary producer uh, back in the 80s and 90s, uh, Barbara Streisand's former boyfriend. You have Sean Penn in there as a washed-up movie star and his uh, road director, uh, played by Tom Waits. You have um, Maya Rudolph popping in there. You have John C. Riley popping up in there. Like, there's just a bunch of uh, guest stars that will pop up in there occasionally. Chicago Zondo, who you've seen in Booksmart and a bunch of other things. 
And again, it's very much this kind of slice of life, coming of age drama that may develop a relationship between Gary and Alana. We'll talk about it in a second. Uh, Noah, I want to go over to you first. I know when we talked about the trailer, you know, all those months ago when we first started the show, none of us really knew what to make of it. And the result is, you know, it's not that simple to describe. Uh, but where would you fall on Licorice Pizza in terms of enjoyment? The experience of watching it is living in that setting. Living in 70s California, um, watching a relationship, I almost want to say bloom, but honestly, Brandon, I cannot romanticize the fact that the whole time I was curious over why we had this adult and like teenager relationship. Um, I was still trying to understand it throughout the film, but I was trying to see the scenes like separate to that relationship. So I was intrigued by the incorporation of all the real life personalities. Um, it was amazing to just, you know, in my head go, the experience of watching this film is almost like visiting these real, these real moments of history that Paul Thomas Anderson can recount or his, he has experienced through friends. Um, and then interweaving all those events with this tale of um, of two people who had a relationship that was very, very different to the one that they end up having um, by the end of the film. And that's because of the push and pull of what they ask and what they are able to give to one another. Um, the sense of adventure that one of them feels over the sense of independence that one of them needs. Um, it's reminiscent of just, I think, what early love um, really asks of you. You're either going to give your all or you're, or you're, or you're going to demand for more, um, perhaps even both. And, uh, you know, Age gap kind of made, it gave me really weird vibes, but I was trying to see things separate to that. So I, I was fascinated by those real life um, elements. Uh, the concepts for small business, Gary Valentine, uh, you know, Cooper Hoffman, he has these concepts to establish a waterbed business and then to establish a pinball business. And these seems like, these seem like easy throwaways, like for a script to include, but then the film sees them out and you see the growth of a waterbed business. You see the growth of a pinball business. For me as a viewer, I was just happy to see, like, I was so satisfied to see like, Oh, he just mentioned it in two scenes. And now we're having like this, this boogie nights kind of vibe, um, at a, at a pinball machine bar or pinball machine spot. And, and that's what I really enjoyed is I enjoyed living in the settings that were shown to us. Um, Alana Haim is excellent in this. Uh, she is, she's hilarious. She's got comedic timing. Um, and that pays credit to the script where I think it, you know, isn't powerful in more places than not. Um, but, but those are, those are the top level comments for me. Um, I did, I was kind of like twiddling my thumbs around two thirds of the movie going, you know, what, what is Alana seeking, um, as a character, like professionally, does she want to commit her life to something bigger? Um, or does she want to remain, um, you know, more local with her business, business savvy, um, young friend, you know? Um, to me, I think the film does a good job at not framing itself as directly a romance. I think if you view it as a coming-of-age romance and that idea of Gary and Alana getting together is your end goal, then, yeah, it's a little creepy and a little weird. And I'm not going to lie, it rubbed me a long way in at least a couple of minutes. Um, but by the end of it, I think I got the realization that, oh, this isn't real. Like, beyond the fact that they're fictional characters, obviously. But I think Paul Thomas Anderson and co-cinematographer Michael Bauman, they kind of established this kind of hazy-like quality to 1970s LA, uh, and from actually people who I've heard, like, because my family, part of my family grew up in LA, and, you know, uh, I have friends who have, you know, families who grew up in there. They've told me stories about that, too, and it kind of reminds me of what is being presented here. It's very dreamlike, in between, like, 
the vinyl era and into the digital era. Like it's starting to kind of transition there, but it's not quite there yet. Um, and I like the idea that Anderson leans into the idea of this as a fairy tale is not the right word. Point being, I think it works for Alana and Gary's relationship in that one, they don't quite know what either of them want. And that's kind of the point of the movie is that it's aimless. It doesn't really know where it's going. And you kind of just have to follow along with it and see, you know, what you think of it. And I like the subjectivity of that. But it's also the fact that, like, neither of them really have a chance with one another. Like, the movie goes into detail of being like, yeah, they clearly have affection for one another. They clearly have some kind of arbitrary, you know, like for each other. But at the same time, the ending to me, even though it's that thing of like, you know, I won't spoil exactly what it is, but it feels like one thing. I didn't gather that. I gathered it as much more like this is the ideal of what they would like. Um, and we'll get to The Lost Daughter later on. And I kind of have a similar vibe with the ending of that movie. Um, as far as the performances go, Alana Hyman and Cooper Hoffman are stars, uh, specifically Alana. And again, this makes total sense as to why Paul Thomas Anderson directed all of those Heim videos. He was searching out like which one of them was the best actors. And oh my God, first of all, all the Heim sisters pop up in this and the scenes that they're all three of them in are great. But as far as Alana herself, she plays Alana the character as really witty, really sardonic, really sarcastic, just likable enough for you to constantly want good things for her, even though, again, you know, the relationship stuff, she doesn't really know what she's doing. She, you know, kind of hates her parents, that whole thing. And then Gary, who, you know, should kind of be like a slime bag in any other movie, is really likable in this and is really charismatic. And Cooper Hoffman is leaning into like just the right element of maturity there to be you know, acting over his age, like he's taking her to pitch meetings. Like he's showing his mom how to work telephone lines for like the waterbed business and everything like that. He's taking charge of that. And I like how Anderson kind of flips both characters as we would see them on their head beyond the fact that their chemistry is just immaculate and they're just really, you know, quite entertaining in the movie. Uh, I want to talk about Tom Waits. I know we're talking about Bradley Cooper. Fair enough. John Peters is, you know, if you know anything about the guy in real life, he is, you know, beyond audacious. But Tom Waits is in this for one scene, and he's amazing. Uh, I would absolutely love to see him in, you know, supporting categories and awards season later on, but I just I absolutely love him in this. I got wrapped up in it. I think it's Anderson's most accessible movie. If you were like me and you weren't a fan of, like, Phantom Thread or stuff like that, this is genuinely fun and has fun elements to it. And again, the kind of misadventures they get into have intrigue to them. It doesn't all work, and I have my problems with it beyond just the relationship drama, but I think it works enough. Do you feel like you concur with the majority of nominations that this film has received because it has received plenty nominations? Or do you find that, you know, um, there are a select few that you would actually, um, you know, boost it up there for? Yeah, in terms of like critic circles, you know, it's this Power of the Dog and Drive My Car that are being like, you know, the big three in terms of, you know, these are the best movies of the year. Um, I disagree. Uh, let's just say this isn't going to pop up anywhere near my top 10. Um, at least probably not unless like I watch, I get to watch it again. Like it really grows on me. Um, I think again, there's a ton of merit to it. And if you're an Anderson fanatic and you love how he develops characters and develops like sense of visuals and a sense of place within his stories, you will love this. And again, it's anchored by the relationship between Alana and Gary and how he turns them. And the idea of, Again, the 1970s as this kind of turning point, which he kind of frames it as, whether it's, you know, the oil crisis or whether it's, you know, uh, Joel Sachs played by Benny Safdie and the kind of, you know, incorporation of LGBTQ people into politics. Like, where was that going? Like, where was counterculture going from the late 60s? That's an interesting angle to take place in this. The movie makes it a detriment by just not moving well enough because, again, it's just vignette to vignette to vignette with these characters. Uh, but I think if you are a fan of this, I get the appeal. It's just not quite my thing. Brandon. What was that ranking? 
Uh, this is going to be controversial either way. Uh, solid eight. Uh, it's going to be too low for some people. It's going to be too high for others. Um, I genu- I stand by what I said. I think the Chuli performances are fantastic. Uh, the soundtrack also slaps. Like everyone is on this between like the Doors, Wings, Susie Quattro. It's amazing. I've been listening to it on repeat. Uh, more Johnny Greenwood, by the way, working with Paul Thomas Anderson again, which I love. Um, but again, like the movie is accessible. I think anyone can get into the story and can get into Alana and Gary's misadventures. They're just rootable enough to work. But again, the way that Anderson frames his story, how long it is, how it, not that it takes its time, that doesn't really know where it's going. I needed more of a focus for that just as a moviegoer. Beyond, again, the relationship stuff. Beyond also the racial dynamics, which we didn't get to. Uh, John Michael Higgins plays a really xenophobic restaurant owner, and I do not like that he's in the movie at all. Um, there's, there's just problems I have with it overall, but again, I think it's enjoyable. I think it's a good ride and, you know, I get the appeal. All right, Brandon. Um, it's going to be a hot take for me, but you know, this isn't barking up any of my assumed genres. And, uh, unfortunately, you know, I won't be returning to this, but I did find value in, um, in, in experiencing and enjoying my time while I was there in that seventies LA setting. Uh, this is going to be a five for me. You know, I, I will yeah, be, int- I get it. I will be interested in Alana's work in the future because what a, what an introduction, um, Gary Hoffman as well. Um, and then the way, the way that you mentioned the, you know, the vig- vignettes from scene to scene, uh, you really pulled the, pull the words out of my head. Uh, not that I was thinking of those words, but I was just thinking we got, we got kind of like just portions of a story from these real life characters, um, that didn't go anywhere. We filled John Peters's house with a hose full of water. And we're told that, you know, John Peters is going to murder, <laughs> um, Valent, Gary Valentine's family if anything goes wrong. And of course, everything goes wrong. They even run out of gas while pushing their moving truck all the way up this hill, this incline. And then we don't really see where that goes. Or in the end, you know, there is. I'm sorry. A- I'm sorry. We dare not spoil that entire sequence because it's one of the best parts of the movie. It's it, that was wonderful to watch. Uh, I was impressed. I was like, okay, okay. Um, and then we're talking, um, the, the politician scenes, uh, we're working with, uh, you know, a closeted, uh, politician, at least for the time, uh, I would later find out that this politician, um, would, uh, re- you know, become mayor in, uh, it, it, I just looked up a little bit of history. So it was interesting, the real life stories that were included in this, but you know, which slices they gave us. And, um, I'll appreciate it for that, but unfortunately I won't be returning. Uh, my, my notes are, uh, if you have streaming services that this is approaching anytime soon, definitely throw it on there and experience it for yourself. This is going to be a five yeah. for me. Yeah. It's, uh, it went into wide release Christmas day. I believe it's not coming to VOD until like mid February. I don't think it has an actual release yet, but what it does again, if you're, again, if you still say to go to theaters, please check it out. You know, it's getting all the acclaim. I think it deserves some of it. If not wait till it's on VOD. I think it's a good ride. Brandon, it's a bird, it's a plane. But don't look up. <laughs> <laughs> but don't look up. Um, okay. That, that is that's an... the best transition we've ever made. <laughs> right. And they'll keep getting better if you stay with us here at Plot Devices. Just wait for our matrix tag. <laughs> All right. So uh don't look up. This is the newest project from Adam McKay. It is an Adam McKay movie. Or should I say it's a post-big short Adam McKay movie? Uh of course, you know. Step Brothers, Anchorman, and 2016, he made the big short and kind of became, you know, a serious filmmaker. We got big short. We got twice a few years ago about a Dick Cheney. This is his newest satirical drama, if you want to call it that. And I have thoughts on that. Uh, this is based on an original idea from McKay along with, uh, David Sirota, who is a uh, writer for The Guardian. He's a political commentator. 
It stars an ensemble cast of basically everyone, but we'll narrow it down. Uh, you've got Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence as uh, two scientists, two astronomers. You have Dr. Randall Mindy, played by DiCaprio. You have Dr. Kate Dibieski, uh played by Jennifer Lawrence. And one night they are at an observatory. They're studying under the uh, super telescope. And Jennifer Lawrence's character discovers there is a comet. And it's a pretty big one. And after some calculations and after some sending out to NASA and other space organizations, they get a meeting with the president and basically reveal, uh, yeah, this comet's nine kilometers large and it's going to kill us if it hits us and we need to do something about it. The president here is played by Meryl Streep, chief of staff uh, played by Jonah Hill. And you kind of round up the supporting characters as we go more of the movie. You meet uh, another astronomer played by Rob Morgan. You meet a pop star played by Ariana Grande who kind of takes part in the whole, you know, getting the word out kind of thing. You meet uh, two talk show hosts played by uh, Kate Blanchett and Tyler Perry. There's kind of a young skate punk who befriends uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character played by Timothy Chalamet. And the whole movie is essentially Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence's characters just going on this media tour, trying to convince the world that this comet is a real danger when the president's administration won't, the media won't, people are not believing this. There's a whole social movement that comes out of it. And yeah, uh, topical, um, especially considering this wasn't written, this was written way before COVID. It's supposed to be more of a metaphor for climate change, uh, but you can read it as, you know, a bunch of different things as McKay does. Uh, Noah, I want to go over to you first. I know Don't Look Up has been incredibly polarizing online, at least as far as critic spaces go. What did you think of this? Because it's a lot. This movie was a lot. I was inc- I was really intrigued when the trailer came out just because of all those cast titles that were being thrown across that trailer. Um, as far as McKay's work that I'm familiar with, uh, of course, Talladega Nights, um, Step Brothers, The Other Guys. Um, I'm Most seeing of the here, comedy stuff. I'm seeing here that he's directed some SNL stuff, and that's that's always been in my. Um, that's always been in, in my view. So uh, unfortunately, yeah, I missed out on the big short, um, on vice. Um, but this was my first, you know, um, time spent with, at, with Adam McKay's work that wasn't just a straight comedy because yeah, this was satirical. This was, um, a spectacle for the world that we have today and how, um, I, I don't know how, how misconstrued a message can be when it's, when it's blasted across these, massive forms of media um, and ultimately just not paid attention to, or, um, you know, the attention is, is often pivoted to another, another matter that is not as grand or as uh, um, globally disastrous. Uh, one mention I wanted to have was um, the character who invented like um, this AI or this social platform that we have here and don't look up. The actor is Mark Rylance. The character is Peter Isherwell. Brandon, can you help me understand why he felt so weird on camera? Like why he was like a Mr. Rogers, like, like of their corporation. Like what was happening there? What, what was his character? Yeah. Someone online described him as like, think an amalgamation of like every tech billionaire ever. And it kind of makes sense. Okay. Knowing that, like, I think I could have approached this story better. Um, I think, What's important for me was just taking a look at all the different actors and looking at the characters that they portrayed and finding which one that I um, felt the most attracted to, which one I felt most intrigued by, um, engaged with. And that was Meryl Streep's. I think Meryl Streep's president, Orlean, um, or Orlean, uh, was absolutely uh, phenomenal every time she was on screen. She was hilarious. She was, um, she was playing the, uh, you know, let's not, let's not give it to him straight. Let's, let's try and, um, uh, let's, let's reduce all the facts down to something digestible or else the world would just go into pandemonium. And, um, she's a fun character to hate. You love to hate her. 
I was also surprised to see Jennifer Lawrence because it's been a while since we've seen Jennifer Lawrence on camera. I was like, okay, you know, this is her returning to work and she's playing a character that I think is off brand, but um, definitely an exciting addition to her uh, catalog. Leonardo DiCaprio is phenomenal. I'm not surprised he's being um, nominated or I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if he was nominated for best actor because of the role that he um, because of the acting that he delivers here, uh, who I thought fell flat for me were, uh, the expansion of Kate Planchett's character, the news anchor. She has a sort of side romance plot with DiCaprio. And I, I don't know, I, I guess I just appreciated her and Tyler Perry as those uh, media hosts or media anchors. But when they started going off air and we started exploring more of that territory, um, I just didn't find it to be as valuable or as, you know, contributing to the overall story. The fact that there is a meteor coming down to earth. Ron Perlman was great. Um, it was great. It was fun to see Ariana, you know, Kid Cudi too once it ended i love disaster flicks uh, once this movie ended i felt kind of like winded i just kind of felt like oh man like oh I, I guess you know like it, it didn't leave me with a lot to chew on um but it, i guess it was just it was just an approach to hey ha, if we if we had some kind of word spread like this here's here's the, the most ridiculous method that this could possibly play out um which was sad to to look at you know it was a sad to see a reflection of how some reactions have been in the world um and to see them be reflected in this film of course it's all fictional um and yeah that's that's all i'm thinking about right now how about you brandon i can't believe i'm about to say this i might wind up liking moonfall more than this easy I never thought I'd say that. Uh, Cause like, you know, I've been like joking about Moonfall. Like we've all been joking about Yeah, we, We've been loving Moonfall, honestly. Like right. we, that's been like, that's but been the popcorn we pass back and forth. Yes. Very much. Uh, in our club. Uh, but you know, this, this is my way of being like, I don't like don't look up very much. That's not to say that the cast is not committed to the bit. They're very committed to the bit. Um, everyone in here is clearly under McKay's vision and David Sorota as well, you know, give him story credit, obviously. But like McKay's vision is very much this thing of, I want to commentate on trust and society and tech and how those all kind of collaborate together in the midst of oncoming disaster, whether that be a comet, whether that be climate change, whether that be COVID, whether that be police brutality, whether that be every, anything, you know, how we as a society can be so ignorant and how we can turn away if we can. I get the appeal. I do. And you know what? Credit to DiCaprio. He's playing against type. I haven't seen a role this exciting from DiCaprio in a while. And that's coming as someone who loved him in The Revenant. Like, I do think he's great in that. And obviously roles in the past few years, you know, Wolf of Wall Street and all that kind of stuff. But he's very much playing, he's not playing so much off kilter with Dr. Mindy, but he's playing it just enough to kind of channel, you know, Network and Dr. Strangelove and like all these movies that you're clearly trying to gather from Adam McKay. We get it. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment. But like, I like that Leonardo DiCaprio is kind of channeling his more oddball comedic sensibilities um, versus like kind of the dude bro stuff that Martin Scorsese was channeling in Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, but again, everyone's in on the joke. Like Jennifer Lawrence has some really cool moments. Rob Morgan, I always love seeing more of him in. Uh, Meryl Streep, you're right. She gets to do some really interesting stuff in this that makes you just hate her. Jonah Hill is despicable in this movie, and I'll, you know, I'll leave it at that. Um, and there's cameos in there that I'll, you know, leave out here and there. But again, I think at the end of the day, Adam McKay made a movie that is a bit. And it's, it's all that is. Like, it, to me, it's not scathing enough. It's not biting enough. It's not, anytime it tries to have urgency enough, 
it doesn't quite work until the third act. And I won't spoil what it is for any of you who haven't seen it. But I think the third act finally takes the turn that similar movies, like if any of you seen Melancholia or you've seen Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, movies that are somewhere like, a comet's about to come kill us. What do we do? Like, And those movies take more of an intimate, humanistic point of view to it. This one is way wider. Like, it's much more the idea of, you know, governments and the UN and, you know, sociological constructs and everything like that. And then the third act kind of shrinks the focus a bit more. And I found it more interesting. Like, I was able to gravitate to the characters more. There's a dinner scene that I think is really, really powerful. Moments like that, I think McKay is finding a groove of like, oh, humans exist. I should talk about, like, actual human kindness and empathy Versus, you know, the worst tendencies of humanity, like the Meryl Streep character, like the Jonah Hill character. And I get what all of it is. It's meant to be like a big mirror looking back at us and going, look how big of a joke we are as, you know, a species that we can look at an ongoing threat and go, well, I don't think that's the thing. Even if there's proof, I don't want to believe you. And that's my right to not believe you. Like, I get the idea of it. I really do. And I've seen so many people online defending this is like, oh, it's sharp. It's satirical. It's witty. Like, it's needed right now. And again, maybe in, you know, 10 years if things do keep going as, you know, not great as they are, maybe this will become even more biting and even more relevant. And I'm more than willing to change my mind on that. For now, though, I think it is a movie that tries to aim for satire at a time that I don't think needs it, or at least doesn't need this brand of it. When we're all questioning the state of the world, it was kind of weird to be like, and then this is the movie where we end the world. And I five. also, right. Yeah. I also do want to point out that it seems like McKay is just a little bit obsessed with 2016. Uh, beyond the fact that Streep's character is very much a Trump pastiche, there's also the fact that he got Linus Sandgren and Nicholas Patel to do the music, who worked on both of the 2016 Best Picture frontrunners, Moonlight and La La Land. So I found that kind of like a weird connection of just like, are you just, obs- like, is your mind just stuck like five years ago? And he's like, I refuse to leave. Um, you can't kick me out. That's him in 2016. I don't have many notes here. You know, I, I'm excited to uh, approach our next topic, so I'm going to keep this short. Um, I, it was a pleasure to witness, um, yeah, the different character types from this variety, from this catalog of actors who we're all familiar with. Um, I give this a six out of ten. I can't give this higher than a four. Again, I get the appeal. I get the actors involved. There are some really good performances, and I, I did bring up Nicholas Patel. His score is awesome, and I'm probably going to be here listening to it a lot. Like, I like the kind of jazzy inflections of all of it. Um, but again, like. Beyond the third act, beyond the shtick of it all, there's not something that really sunk in with me. And for a movie like this that I think is really supposed to be like, hey, people, let's get together and do a thing. Like, that's what the best satire is kind of meant to be like. Oh, haha, isn't that funny? Let's actually do something. This I didn't feel like really hit the mark on that, even though it's trying desperately to do that. But again, like, I, I'm sure that you've seen this as well. There's so many people out there who have really gravitated towards this movie, whether it's because of the cast, whether it's because of McKay's message. And you know what? Fair enough. Like, we're in a time of, you know, unprecedented change and unprecedented stuff happening. Maybe that can work for some people. Just for me, I really wanted this to be better. And if we're going to get satire like this, it has to actually go the extra mile for me. So thank you for joining us on the discussion for Don't Look Up. We are. Why am I acting like I'm coming back from an ad break? OK, hold on. Sponsored by Advil. We're bringing you back to a world that you know and love, baby. It is a trilogy. Initially, we are coming back to the Matrix. What can you introduce us about? What can you introduce us with for The Matrix Resurrections? In the now immortal words of Jonathan Groff, going back to where it started, The Matrix. Uh, this is Matrix Resurrections. It's the fourth Matrix movie. It is directed by Lana Wachowski in her solo directorial debut. Uh, Lily Wachowski is not back in the, in the director's chair for this. Uh, it stars, once again, Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, uh, Jane Pinkett-Smith from the original movie, 
We also have Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, Jonathan Groff once again, Neil Patrick Harris, Jessica Henwick, who I cannot wait to talk about. Uh, how do I describe this movie for those of you who haven't seen it? Uh, spoilers for Matrix, Re- uh, Matrix Revolution, I should say. Uh, in that movie, Neo and Trinity die. Uh, we then cut to Matrix Resurrections seemingly 20 years later, follow a group of freedom fighters led by Jessica Henwick's Bugs, who is a hacker tech guru type character. She encounters what appears to be an alternate version of Morpheus, played by Yad Abdul-Mateen II. They team up. They've kind of heard the legends of Neo of the One. Uh, and then we just kind of cut to what seems to be the real world. And Neo is, or should I say Thomas, uh, played by Keanu Reeves, is working as a game developer. And his coup de grace, his, you know, um, his magnum opus, if you will, is the Matrix video game. Uh, and his corporate bosses, one of whom is played by Jonathan Groff, they want to go back to the Matrix. They want to, you know, uh, make more money and make another product that people remember and all this stuff. And Thomas doesn't quite uh, vibe with that. Uh, the only thing he seems to actually find enjoyment in is his therapy sessions with his therapist, played by uh, Neil Patrick Harris, as well as a mysterious customer in a cafe uh, named Tiffany, played by, once again, Carrie Anos. From there, the movie kind of goes into what the original movie was. Like, you know, how much of this is real? How much of maybe the Matrix stuck around? How much of it didn't? Uh, and if it has, what is this new version of the Matrix that we as audiences found ourselves in? And what will, you know, Thomas and potentially his supporting players who are left from the first couple movies have to deal with now? Um, I went back and rewatched, I, I don't know about, you know, I rewatched the original Trinity, original Trinity, the original trilogy, I should say, in honor of this. And I have thoughts in regards to that. Uh, did you do the same? And if so, did it impact your view of Resurrections at all? Yo, no, you know what? I grew up with the Matrix, um, you know, always in my DVD player. My dad uh, showed us the first one and I just remember watching Reloaded all the time. And then, um, Retribute, or sorry, Revolutions, I probably spent the least time with. Uh, a short recap video that I found on YouTube was ample for me to enter Ma- Matrix Resurrections with the knowledge of who Neo was, what he means to the Matrix universe, um, who Trinity was to him, and all the important characters that are uh, returning, because we do have iconic uh, returning faces, although we don't have uh, Lawrence, Fishburne, Lawrence Fishburne's Morpheus, we do have Morpheus in some capacity. Um, we also have, um, like you mentioned, Carrie Ann Moss returning as Trinity, and Trinity and before I, you know what, before I mention it, is it just, would it be a spoiler if I mentioned Jada Pinkett Smith? Uh, no, you can mention she's there. Okay. Like maybe don't mention exactly what she does, but like she's there. Yeah. And Jada Pinkett Smith returns as her character, Niobe. I love Niobe because I played the PlayStation game Enter the Matrix like for hours when it was like the only thing that I had uh, to play video games on. And um, I played as the character Niobe, who's so badass in her red leather. Um, I was really hoping she would return in this with the same look. Um, but the shift that they take with her character um, is 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 new for the the Matrix universe because of what. Uh, what has happened to the universe. So what, if you experience it, you know, I'm not going to spoil any plot details there. But what was so exciting about The Matrix Resurrections was in the very beginning, we, even if you watched a recap, you are experiencing the start of The Matrix again in Resurrections. You are witnessing recreated or reimagined scenes that involve 
Trinity first and first picking up the call, being instructed by Morpheus to, you know, get out of the building that she's, that she's being, um, cornered into by all of the Anderson agents, or I'm sorry, all of the Mr. Smith agents. And, um, we see some iconic flashbacks to, uh, to what those, to what those fight and chase scenes were in that city. Um, the incorporation of bugs was probably you know, the easiest thing for me to attach to as a returning viewer for the matrix, because Neo wasn't doing too much in the beginning, other than being a confused developer, trying to piece together why, you know, the matrix is now a video game and who Tiffany means to him. Um, he's in the same position as us ignorant viewers, because we don't know why the matrix is a suddenly a video game. Um, and we're trying to piece that together as well. So bugs is really the, the captain of, um, just guiding us through what has happened to the matrix and what and where neo is located um and that to me was the was the the part of the adventure that i was on board with that i was like you know with them from from beat to beat it wasn't until we introduced um you know the second half of the story and you know certain rescue operations that really got you know messy uh maybe too many ideas in the pot maybe too many words in the pot maybe just remove the pot. I don't know what was happening there. Um, but to see the Wachowski, um, the solo, um, Lana Wachowski return and direct, um, I am a fan of sense eight and they bring back a lot of familiar faces from that show. So I was actually very, um, I, I was very pleased to see all of those characters because, or all of those actors, because I love them in the show sense eight. And it seems that Wachowskis are, are, um, they won't be letting go of some of these, um, popular collaborations anytime soon. So that was exciting to witness. Um, the Matrix has a new look. Everything isn't the iconic, you know, sleek leather look and trench coats. Now every character has more of like an individual appeal. Um, and, and I actually really like that. I like seeing everyone's transition from, you know, the real world and then into the Matrix to see how they adorned themselves, what kind of accessories that they had. Um, the Wachowski wasn't, the way, Lana Wachowski was not playing with um, the character design in this feature. That being said, there weren't many memorable characters in it. You know, as far as the villains come, I didn't find myself completely motivated behind who the big bad ended up being and um, what we see become of Trinity. Uh, it, it's a little difficult to speak on because of the spoiler-esque of it all. But I just, I, I guess I wasn't prepared for the type of story that Resurrections was going to tell after reviewing information online, after looking into other people's interpretations of what, um, Lana was trying to achieve with this, which was really, Hey, you wanted another Matrix movie. I'm going to give you the next movie that I want to make with the Matrix. It's not going to be your Matrix. And it's even like, if you watch the movie, that's kind of said by Jonathan Groff's character, where it's like, you know, the studios are demanding another Matrix. We got to pipe it out. You know, what are we going to do? And. I guess I might have to return to this and see and really realize its value. But for now, it's a little sour for me. Yeah, as far as the uh, Sensei connection, David Mitchell and Alexander Hemmen, who worked on Sensei, they also come on as co-writers with uh, Lana as well. Uh, I really respect this. The thing is, I watched it for the first time, and everyone was asking me, like, what did you think of Resurrections? And I thought, I need to watch this again. Because I saw the controversy around it, like I saw, you know, the discourse and everything. And I was like, I don't know whether I love this or hate this. I really don't. Because for a long time, for a long time, like a week, um, for the time between the first and second viewing, I kind of had that idea of this is Lana, again, like you said, taking this into her own hands uh, and kind of making it, you know, as meta as possible, as in your face as possible, 
very much like a lot of her and Lily's other work, you know, Speed Racer and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and even going back to the original Matrix, like that movie was very much in your face. Like, this is what cinema is now. Like, we're going to take Hong Kong action and bullet time and all those things and we're going to, you know, put them in your face. And that's what action is now. And it worked. And here I think it doesn't have that same, you know, pun intended, revolution of an effect. But I will say the second time around, it feels autobiographical to a weird degree. Like, as weird as it is for to say, like, all the weird tech that's in the movie, like, this is kind of autobiographical. Like, this feels like, you know, Thomas in this movie is Lana, and, you know, the Warner Brothers par- parallels are obviously in there with Jonathan Groff's character. Tiffany could potentially be Lily. Um, You know, Morpheus could potentially be, you know, uh, Joel Silver, if you want to go that route of kind of, like, a collaborator who maybe, you know, fell off in terms of grace and everything. Again, I won't spoil, like, everything. But there's a lot of, like, things in Lana's history as a director that I found like parallel in this. And I was like, oh, I kind of get where you're going with this. It also just kind of rules. I like the idea of, you know, Bugs is kind of like our new follow character. Like she's great, Jessica Henwick. I've been waiting to see what she does after Iron Fist. And thank God she got a great role after this because uh, this is great. Uh, Yaya Abdul has a you know, ton of charisma. Jonathan Groff has some really great moments. Again, I won't say what he does in case you haven't known, but He's great in it. Uh, but the real stars are, again, Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss, who, in the scenes they have together that aren't based in, you know, everything Matrix, they're genuinely lovely. Like, I've heard people be like, oh, I want, like, a romantic comedy between Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss now. And I kind of do. Like, they have the best chemistry as these characters. And I think what they represent for each of these characters, like, Thomas is very much going through a lot of mental issues, a lot of kind of ideas of, like, again, what is real and what isn't that have only been emphasized by what he thinks happens from the Matrix trilogy that we as an audience don't know until later. And as far as, you know, Carrie Ann Moss's characters go, we get to see her point as kind of like the moral center of it all, and we get to see how she impacts Thomas as a character and how he impacts her. Like, I thought it was more mutual than maybe any of the other Matrix movies. Um, As a whole, you're right. It's self-referential as all hell. Like, if I could take out all this, you know, meta commentary that isn't subtle, I would, because there's a lot of it. Whether it's, like, the pitch room meeting or whether it's, you know, the agent stuff or, you know, everything else, like, it can get on people, it can get on my nerves, let alone audiences' nerves. Um, But I respect a lot of this. Like, I found myself going, this is really neat. The character of Neo, we've always valued for that intense, I mean, Neo and Trinity for their intense, hard work. Exactly. Um, doing all of their martial arts i'm sorry this fell flat when it came to neo as an action star um in the first half we really did get some hand-to-hand combat that we're used to i was waiting for neo to like throw a hand behind his back and start like one hand fighting these mr smiths um some of those iconic callbacks to what these characters moves are we did see like a you know, a, a scorpion type like kick from Trinity, which I, which I was very happy to see. No swan kick though. And that was a little depressing, but, or a crane kick. So that was a little depressing. But, um, in the second half, we really see Neo unlock a certain level of potential that allows him a level of telekinesis or something. And I just feel like that is, um, beaten to death, uh, in the second act. It, it really became repetitive to the point of me going, Oh my gosh, like, like we're in a motorcycle chase scene, but we're getting the same type of, um, you know, I would describe them as quick time events from a video game where you got to mash a button and immediately dodge a missile. And that was happening again and again and again and again. And it was a hard watch for me because I just was waiting for the, this final big, um, act to, to pay off with some of, with some of our iconic, iconic fight duels back together. 
I just want to, because I noticed this the first time I finished watching the movie, and I still think it's one of the coolest things about it. And it has nothing to do with like the actual content of the movie. It's more of a behind-the-scenes thing. If you watch the Matrix movies, either on HBO Max, which they're all streaming on, or if you watch them on demand or DVDs, it always says, you know, the Wachowski sisters' dead names, because it was before they transitioned. And this one was the first one that says Lana Wachowski directed this movie. She co-wrote, she produced this movie. And I... I kept thinking, like, God, if I was Lana and, like, watching that, like, my name, like, who I am on that screen, I just thought that was an amazing, like, little detail. But that was the only last thing I wanted to mention. Yeah, of course. I mean, just coming from the queer community, seeing queer representation. And, uh, you know, one of the noticed things for me is, like, I know Jonathan Groff. I know Neil Patrick Harris. Not personally. Right. But I, I know <laughs> Wait, that they, I know that they both come from the same community. And for them, um, for them both to play the characters that they do, I was happy to see. Because I was just like, hell yeah, like, this is a... There's a lot of, there's a lot of gay in this movie. And I, me, I, I was a big fan. So, um, what it does for me removing my, you know, critical lens and being like, Oh, plot this character, this, I, I am, I am going to, uh, value this movie for what it does for the, for what it means to the queer community. Um, and again, also bringing a lot of that sensei team over, I think it only brings to the forefront more of that queer subtext that was very clearly in the original trilogy, but bringing it a lot more to the forefront, whether it's casting, whether it's behind the scenes, whether it's more subtext. But I think you make a very valid point with that. Um, I gave it its flowers, or at least I want to. Um, <laughs> but regarding our rankings, um, I, I am still kind of on the fence. I will need to return. I will need to resurrect my own experience um, and return to this movie. So I'm going to give it a five. I initially gave it like a five and a half. I, I'm going up to at least an eight. I, again, I think this is one of the more respectable, you know, quote unquote legacy sequels that we've gotten in recent years in that, yes, it recognizes what it is sometimes to a fault, um, but it also recognizes the potential of its story. It, re- it recognizes the potential of where its characters can go from both their perspective and from the audience's perspective. From an action standpoint, I get it. It's a little bit disappointing. I wish some of the action sequences were either, you know, framed a bit differently or maybe lasted a bit longer. Totally get it. But from purely a, you know, intellectual perspective, from a, you know, kind of metatextual thing, I respected the hell out of this. If this is the last Matrix thing we ever get, this is a great conclusion to me. I think it wraps everything up really nicely. If you would like to check it out, it is in theaters right now if you're comfortable or it is streaming on HBO Max, I believe, until January 11th, uh, somewhere like mid-January. So check it out there. I recommend it. Noah's more trepidatious on it. I know the discourse has been a lot on it. So Matrix fans, unite. Plug in. Right? Connect. Yeah. All right. That's going to wrap our review portion for this episode. Uh, we do have one more review coming at you. Um, thankfully, the stars aligned, and we were exploring directorial debuts for our episode. And we are going to be discussing Maggie Gyllenhaal's the Lost Daughter, that is a, um, a a film released on Netflix on December 31st, so that is just uh, freshly released. Olivia Coleman stars and Dakota Jansen. <laughs> Spumke Jansen's sister, Dakota. <laughs> Enough. Olivia Coleman plays a professor on vacation whose experiences um, and her encounters with a mother of one daughter on the beach, uh, it really offers Coleman's character a chance to reflect on her own relationship. She has two daughters and she reflects about uh, the moments when she uh, was mothering her children uh, while they were toddlers, um, the type of experiences that she has. Uh, this is Coleman. Her character's name is Leda. The young Leda is portrayed by Jesse Buckley, who we recent, who we recently seen, if you are paying attention to Netflix original releases, in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, where she was phenomenal. Um, this movie is Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut. 
Um, it is, it does have a two hour runtime and it feels short and small. I don't know if it's coming to terms with her style of motherhood or if it's just reminiscent of, you know, the love that she reserved from her daughters at from a young age and trying to make up for it by seeing it in another woman. It was a story that, um, I walked into kind of blind. Um, but I mean, we're working with Olivia Coleman here. We know the star power that woman has. We've all seen the favorite. We've all given her her flowers. We've got Dakota Johnson, who was surprised to me. I was a little unrecognized um, here. She has darker hair. She has darker makeup. Um, and I looked, I had to like take a couple of glances for me to realize that that was Dakota Johnson. Um, but, you know, for debuts, um, what can I share with you um, out the gate? I think that Jalen uh, Hall's directing style um, at times can be perceived as like claustrophobic. Um, we do get really up close in our up close and intimate with our characters during their conversations. Um, I think that's because where uh, sometimes our setting plays more to the story than um, what our characters say to each other. I think this one is primarily the words that are spoken between the characters. It doesn't, ha- it doesn't matter that it happens on a beach or that it happens, um, you know, on this vacation getaway. Uh, it mostly just matters because she's witnessing another mother parent her child in a similar fashion that she did her own. Yeah, and uh, Hall shot this with uh, Helene Louvar, who also shot uh, Never Really, Sometimes, Always, if you, if any of you saw that last year. It's on HBO Max, by the way. It's fantastic. Um, but she shot that with uh, her, and it, it, you're right. Claustrophobic is the right word for this, because, first of all, I really like this movie. Um, I don't know if I'd go as far as to say I adore it. Uh, I have some pacing issues with it. I have some character issues, like, and we'll get into them. Um, but this is really kind of remarkable for a first directorial effort, especially one so recent. Um, I, I love Maggie Gyllenhaal as an actress, obviously, you know, you know, she was on Colbert like a couple weeks ago and she was kind of being like, oh, I think I've always felt myself as a director. And you can kind of tell with this, like a lot of things come very naturally to her, whether it's, you know, where to put the camera, where to kind of frame the character's decisions, especially with Lita as a character. Um, and of course, to have two actresses like Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley in your role does not hinder it at all. In fact, it pretty much propels the story forward. Like both of them are phenomenal in this Um Buckley doesn't get as much to do, but as someone who is most familiar with her work from, you know, Wild Rose and, you know, Judy and stuff like that, she's great in this. She has a lot of kind of, she has the kind of initial sense of exhaustion to her that you can see paralleled in Coleman's character, but it's not until you really dive into, you know, Olivia Coleman as the older Leda that you start to really get the idea of who this character is as a mother, but also as a human, as, you know, a tourist, as like all the different facets of her. And once you kind of get that complete picture of her by, I'd say like the third act, like there's a scene with her and Dakota Johnson in the um, in their beach house where everything kind of comes full circle with both of their characters. And I think that really sets in stone the idea of Lita's priorities up to that point, who she was, who she might be in the future. And again, Coleman and Buckley just are having a time diving into like all the different like subtleties of the character between again, exhaustion is one word, but also that claustrophobic nature, that sense of like complete, you know, PTSD to the sense of the character. And what I love about Joan Hall's take on this is that this is also based on uh, Elena Ferrante's novel. I should have mentioned. Uh, and oh. apparently in that novel, the same kind of idea is placed out of the idea of, you know, motherhood, but also, and I love that idea of exploring the, but also, because I think so often it's romanticized and it's so, kind of glamorized as, you know, beautiful and, you know, uh, surreal and that kind of thing. But it can be beautiful and serene in incredibly haunting and detrimental ways as well. 
if you're not prepared for it. And we very clearly get the idea of, you know, Lita as a character was not ready to do this. And even as she's grown up and has her, and as her daughters have grown up, she still isn't quite ready to take on that responsibility. And we kind of get to see not the unraveling, but the kind of journey that she herself goes on. And it's the thing that drove me the most through the movie. She kind of does sabotage the mother that she um, interacts with in this movie. I was going to say, but there's also a reason for it. Like, it's not just her going, you know, oh, I couldn't, you know, have a great motherhood, so you can't. Like, there's a lot more to it that we get to explore. And that's the part that I'm thankful for is, is this is a story of, you know, the non, it's not, it's not the perfect parent. It's the real parent. It's the one that, you know, where there are many qualities to what makes a good parent, but nobody can define it completely. Here we're giving a, a character who we know is a mother and we don't even know if, if her children are still alive or just the way that she speaks about them. You're question, you're doubting what her relationship status is with her daughters because of how she describes it. And to me, it's like, this is a, this is a real depiction of a person who, um, regardless of their life experiences or through their life experiences, I should say, um, has become the parent that they are, whether it's as distant as they are, whether it's as, um, reserved or as loving as they are, you're figuring that out throughout the movie. And, and the mystery of that is, I think, what will help you get through it. Um, I'm just framing it like that because I watched that this morning and, um, you know, just a surface level, that's what I was experiencing. Um, but Brandon talking about parenting styles, talking about motherhood and, just gives me, you know, a, a kind of a new perspective to look at this in and um, to take this kind of simple premise of a vacation story where two mothers interact with each other. Um, it's, it's a lot more than that. And so to see Jill and Hall paint those messages and to do it so, um, so pleasantly, like there isn't any, like, I, I would say there's no hard edges to this story. Um, there are sharp points though. There is, there is a stabbing kind of, um, but mm-hmm. But I, I I did enjoy watching this movie. I think that um, it's peaceful, um, it's emotional. If you give it attention, you really have to look at the layers that it's that it's servicing because it speaks on parenthood. And I think that a, a rewatch would really um, do this a service to understanding uh, more about Lita as a character. I agree. I'm I'm curious what I think upon this. You know, rewatching, seeing like the details, seeing where I know the characters go, especially Dakota Johnson's character, who for a while we never quite get. You know, where her angle is. Part of the, you know, general plot is like there's, you know, this family and she's, you know, a mother herself. And we kind of get the vibes from like, oh, this family is like no good. Like there's, you know, a lot of rabble rouses in there. There's like, you know, privileged, you know, bougie people in there. And like then you have to go to Johnson's character who for a while is kind of, you know, trying to get out of this abusive relationship. She's trying to take care of her own child. Uh, and I do want to bring up the ending. Uh, I love the ending of this movie so much. I won't spoil it because I have a theory about it that it's not quite what it appears to be. And if it is, I think it only makes the movie better. I'm sure what I needed to, this is a, um, it's a story that's much deeper than what, what you see on the surface, uh, from Maggie Gyllenhaal. I mean, I'm a fan of her acting work. So to, to see her directing chops, um, I'm impressed. And I, it was enough for me to go, okay, like, uh, this happened in tick, tick, boom, where people will love what people will love and support that first effort. And then immediately go, I can't wait to see what comes next. And that's me. I'm going Maggie Gyllenhaal. Um, this was great. Is she going to continue, um, with these family centered stories? Uh, what kind of, what kind of genres will she lean into? What kind of stories? Um, I was a fan watching this movie for now. It rests easy at a seven. 
And I am a bit of a broken record today. I'm going to say an eight. I think this is really well done. I think Maggie Gyllenhaal made a really solid, really compelling directorial debut. Again, I haven't read the novel, so I don't know how much how much is based that in you know Elena Ferrante's material versus Gyllenhaal's. But she clearly knows her way around the camera. She knows her way around a good, compelling you know family drama story. Um, where that you know, but because Maggie Gyllenhaal comes from an interesting family, and I'm wondering just how much of that influenced her work. But that's a whole another cup of tea in some rights. Um, Coleman and Buckley are the reason you come here. Their dual collaboration as Lita is maybe one of the most interesting characters of the year. You may not find her likable, but you will always find her interesting. And I'm very curious to see what Maggie Gyllenhaal can do with this type of, you know, sense of tension and types of placing. Um, the movie is streaming on Netflix. Go check it out. We are both fans of it. And um, yeah, hopefully Maggie Gyllenhaal does more about this in the future. And that'll do it for today's all-review episode, our second-ever all-review episode for this. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. If you like this, please let us know. We'd love to do more of these in the future. I kind of had a blast with this as I did with the other one. Listen, while we've got you guys here, uh, a couple of quick things. Go follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. That's Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. Uh, we post there periodically along with new episodes, polls, you know, retweets, things like that. And, of course, new updates to episodes, which you can follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That's Spotify and Apple Podcasts at just Plot Devices. Go follow us there. New episodes usually drop uh, later Sunday, early Monday. I was kind of locked up in isolation earlier this week. I couldn't get to it, but we will get to that. As well as, if you have not heard it yet, our most anticipated films of 2022, that mini episode is out as well. But, again, go follow us, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, at Plot Devices, Twitter and Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod. You'll get all the updates there. I want to, of course, thank my co-host for today, Noah Guzman. Noah, thank you so much for uh, tuning in again for today. Listen, where can the people find you online and what do you got going on in your life? You can find me um, at this Del Mar. Just kidding. You can find me on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. Um, and busy with work this week. Um, you know, I mentioned last episode, I'm still uh, solidifying reviews for um, Cyrano. And then uh, I will be attending a early screener for the film uh, Scream. So that was part of uh, one of those most anticipated for this new year. Um, and it counts, okay? It's a January release, 2022. It counts. So I will be watching Scream, writing a review for The Odyssey Online. Can't wait to share that. I think, I think that's it for me. And Scream will also be included in next week's episode alongside uh, the 355, which we couldn't get to this week, as well as the Tragedy of Macbeth, which I was going to do a review on and I will probably do as well. Uh, you can follow me there. We're on, on uh, Instagram Odyssey at my name, Brandon King. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. Go follow my band at Killbox underscore Music. We just played a gig at the Rebel Lounge about a week and a half ago. Video is coming very soon, and more gig announcements are coming pretty soon. Again, hopefully things don't get too crazy. And once again, Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram uh, for updates on this show. For that being said, uh, for this overview episode, my name is Brandon King. That is Noah Guzman. This is Unblot Devices, and we will catch you next time. Bye.